Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, uh, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 16. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for almost a year, and we've only got 12 chapters left, so, you know, another time of months before we're done. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardbound edition uh, in the seat in front of you, or if you have your app, we're going to turn to Luke 16. I should probably do that as well. And we're going to start in verse 19, and we'll go to the end of the chapter today. We have uh, preached our way here, talking about our certain salvation that Jesus has provided for us and that Dr. Luke wrote about almost 2,000 years ago. So if you would follow along, I'm going to read our passage today, Luke 16, starting in verse 19 and on through the end. The word of the Lord says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time looking at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it brings to our lives. So I pray for myself and for everyone in this room, for everyone who will listen uh, to this later, that you would challenge us, uh, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would get past some of our natural defenses, or that you would help us to see with new eyes, to hear with new ears what you are saying to us and to your church in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would rekindle compassion for the lost, that you would help us to not get used to, not get numb to, not get callous to the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of how short this life on earth really is, So God, help us to go from this place today equipped. Help us to go um, ready to engage a lost and dying world. Those who are, as we once were, lost and uh, without Jesus. So we pray, God, that you would speak through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up playing uh, soccer for a couple years and then turned to the game of basketball. And uh, I was very little... Um, which is funny because uh, Isaiah is a, a beast of a baby, and everyone's like, oh, just like his daddy. <laughs> nope. 
uh, I was a little guy, and so uh, I didn't do a lot of uh, shooting. In fact, in, in soccer early on, they usually don't put little guys in the goal, but <laughs> I don't think I was offering much of anything, and we had a really good team. So they stuck me in the goal for half the game. I just watched because our team was so good. Uh, there was not a lot I had to offer there. And so I had to find my way in the sport of basketball by being faster than everybody else, which meant I dribbled the ball a lot. And one of the first things you learn in soccer or in basketball is that if you're going to be any good and any kind of team player, you have to look around. That's hard when you're starting off because there's a ball bouncing or a ball on the ground moving away from you and you want to find it. And so you have to figure out how to feel so that you can keep your head up and see your teammates to make a pass to in either sport. Uh, And this is something that I I really worked on. I remember my dad saying this and my coach saying this, but this was a constant refrain in my head. It was this, get your head up, 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 head up. Wake up from my dream, head up, head up. That was pounded into me to get my head up, to see ahead, to see what was developing, to see the play that was coming together, to see what was possibly going to happen. And so, I think in a similar manner that what Jesus um, is doing with the disciples in this passage is is asking them to get their heads up. Um, We can get so preoccupied in the next hour, the next few hours, how long it takes to get to bed, right? And and sometimes we can get so consumed with that, that's all we see. It's called tunnel vision, right? That's, That's all we see. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he wants us to see more. He wants us to see what's going on up the field, up court. He wants us to see all that is happening. So we have to pick our heads up just as the disciples and the Pharisees and the crowds here needed to pick their heads up and look down the timeline of their lives to look and see what really matters, to see what really matters in life. They need to pick their heads up. And so that's what I want to ask us to do today is as we reflect on the passage to reflect on our lives and what this has to do with our lives and to pick our heads up to look down, to look towards the future, to look towards the end game. What are we doing now to, to develop what is going to happen in the future? So um, remember at this point, if you've been with us for a while, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Luke has been walking us through the footsteps of the man who is God, Jesus who has set his face to Jerusalem. Um, and so as he goes, he's going at Passover. And so there are Jews from all over the world, literally, coming to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and followers and rich and poor. He's telling parables. He's teaching on the kingdom. He's healing people, uh, all the while slowly making his way to Jerusalem. So as we read this, starting in in chapter 9, verse 51, and all the way up to the triumphal entry in chapter 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And recently, in our studies, we've been seeing uh, uh, an emphasis on Jesus talking about wealth. Um, If it's not direct, then there's an indirect uh, mention of wealth. And uh, he even, uh, last week, Pastor Ron preached on that weird parable, the dishonest manager who was cheating people and then went and cut deals with these guys before he got fired from his job. What is going on here? But talking about wealth and money and shrewdly using our money. Last time I preached was in chapter 12, and we talked about the rich fool. Um, who just thought about more and more and more and more and increasing, and God called him a fool and said that your life is mine tonight, and whose money will all that be? So Jesus has talked plenty about money. In fact, just look at verse 14. 
just a few verses before where we started this morning. Last week, Pastor Ron covered this. The Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money. Lovers of money. Jesus goes after them because he knows that behind all their pious practices, behind all of their spiritual disciplines, there lies a heart of love for money. Now, anybody can have a love for money, right? You don't have to be rich or poor. Anybody can have an inordinate love of money. We know the Bible teaches plenty on the love of money, that it is a root of all kinds of evil. Um, we have seen that so many uh, in the scriptures are have their, their fortunes reversed. Even in the beginning of the book of Luke, when the angel Gabriel shows it to Mary, he talks about this very theme. The downtrodden and the poor and the weak will be lifted up and made strong and given much. We see that in the prayer of Hannah back in the Old Testament when she is uh, rejoicing after God gives her a son about the, the low being raised up. And so we have this uh, focus in these, this chapter especially, but more to come. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. That's coming up in chapter 18. There's much more to come. But in our parable today, Jesus just tells a story. That's, that's all that we have. We don't have any context other than that Jesus is telling another story. And something that lots of people go into, especially this parable with, is how literally do we take it? How symbolic is this parable? I'm not going to give you a percentage, uh, but this is something that we've got to wrestle with as we get through um, this story. Uh, and we need to look at that. And I'll, but before we go any further, here's the bottom line. Some people want to say, well, it's not literal, it's just a symbol. The problem is, if, if there's a symbol, the symbol symbolizes something, right? The symbol symbolizes something else. So um, if, if I unveiled a big red flag with a swastika up here, right, there would be, that would symbolize something that we probably wouldn't like or agree with. Why is that past, senior pastor out of town, this nincompoop is throwing up a, a swastika on the stage? If I did that, that would symbolize something. Well, you say it's just a flag. Well, the symbol symbolizes something real. And so even if this story is largely symbolic, it stands in for things that are real. Does that make sense? So you'll see where I'm going, I think, as we get into it. But I just wanted to to preface um, with that. So if you look at verse 19, Jesus begins this parable in the exact same way that he started the parable that we studied last week. There was a rich man. Same exact words as in verse 1 of chapter 16. There was a rich man. Now, we've got to remember that this automatically is an appealing story. Because the Pharisees are what? They're lovers of money. They, might, they may be rich. They may not be rich. Whatever the case, they're lovers of money. So rich man equals what they want to be. Rich man equals a story of attainment. Or a story that can push them to where they want to be someday as this rich man. And so the rich man theme is automatically appealing to them. And in fact, they wouldn't be too far off because the Pharisees knew their Old Testament well. And all they had to do was read their Old Testament and see plenty of rich men. Job was, was rich. Abraham became rich. Isaac became rich. Jacob became rich. All of the patriarchs. Joseph went from being a prisoner to second in command of all Egypt. Uh, King David, King Solomon, uh, all of these heroes of the Old Testament, so many of them are wealthy. And so Jesus is using this, I think, to, to, to fake out the Pharisees. He's, he wants to get them into the story 
before he flips the narrative on them. So there's a rich man. What's he wearing? He's got purple, fine linen. What's the big deal there? Is he a Lakers fan or a Minnesota Vikings fan? What's, what's happening? Well, purple dye in the time was extremely expensive. Um, only really royalty could afford it. It was a sign of great wealth. If anybody was wearing purple, it was a sign of wealth. Or it could be a shade of scarlet, or it could be violet, whatever the case is. Uh, a, a color similar to that taken from um, uh, these shells and these crabs in the Mediterranean. So it's a sign of great wealth. Um, some people have even speculated here that the uh, clothed in purple is the outer garments and the fine linen might literally be his undergarments. And only the most uh, wealthy people could afford fine linen underwear. Whatever the case, this man is dressed in expensive, fine clothing. Again, very appealing for those who are lovers of money. Status is important. Um, and so these Pharisees are liking this guy a lot. Wow, he's wearing purple. He's got fine linen. He also feasted, I love this word in the ESV, sumptuously every day. <laughs> Did you feast sumptuously yesterday? Um, this is a great word. Um, it means that he ate great feasts. And it seems to imply that he every single day ate great feasts. And at the time, the average meal was soup, bread, and fruit. Um, meat was, uh, it was necessary, but you could only get meat every once in a while, maybe once a week. This rich man, however, every day perhaps has his personal chef make him some of the newest delicacies from Rome and Alexandria and other places. What a guy. And not to uh, be outdone, Jesus goes all the way to the bottom, to the opposite, and describes a poor man in verse 20. And the location of the poor man is very important. This poor man is not just anywhere. He's at the gate of this rich man. And this implies that this man has a palace. Um, th- so this is not like your little like white fence and you like open the gate to get in the front yard. This is probably a stone entrance to a huge uh, palace or a, a mansion. And uh, we see that Lazarus didn't get there on his own. He's laid there. His name is Lazarus. That's interesting. He is the only person in any of Jesus' parables who has a name. If you go back and look at all Jesus' parables, there, there's a Samaritan, there's a priest, there's a Levite, there's a guy, there's a man, there's a woman, there's a son. There, but none of them are named. And what's interesting in this parable is not only is, do we have the name of one of the characters, Lazarus, but we also have a celebrity cameo by Father Abraham himself. So we have two named characters in one parable. So Lazarus, as we see his name is here, is laid at the gate, which would imply he can't get there on his own. Um, he's, he's crippled in some way. Uh, he also is covered with sores. Um, the speculation uh, uh, on this word is perhaps he has surface ulcers or abscesses. Um, perhaps he has bed sores from being crippled. Whatever the case, he's laid at this gate and we have this huge contrast. This rich man who's rich beyond compare and the poorest of the poor at his gate. They exist in the same property. Why is this man at the gate? He desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. This is similar to the, the, the parable of the prodigal son where when the son who runs away, the younger son, gets so desperate, he's just looking for anything he can find. And so Lazarus hopes to perhaps get some of the leftovers from these feasts that are thrown out. 
But, 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 but the worst part yet is that not only is he crippled and unable to get there himself, but while he lays outside the gate, perhaps he hears them feasting inside the house, laughing and eating and drinking. He can't move and the dogs come and lick his sores. I'm not really a dog person. How many of you are dog? You have a dog? Okay, so it, how many of you are not dog people? You're like just not a dog person. Okay, like the dog comes up and licks you and you're like, no, nah, what are you doing, right? Like, and the, uh, you dog people are like, oh, no, oh yeah. She's like, ah, ah, stop that, right? That just gets really weird, okay? That picture, that picture is completely foreign to the Middle East of Jesus' time. Dogs were wild. They were not liked. They were not wanted, um, and so they kind of just fought for whatever they could get. If you've been to some parts of Mexico or in some parts of another country or perhaps part of this country, uh, you'll can see that sometimes when the wild dogs are just kind of roaming around looking for their next meal. One of the commentators, only one, thought that this was actually a good thing and it showed that the dogs who are unclean in Jewish society are comforting this poor guy like the and licking the guy and it's like, oh, how cute the dogs are. I don't, I don't really buy that because all the other commentators were saying, basically what Jesus is, is showing is that not only is he crippled, not only is he laying at the gate, not only is he covered in sores, he can't move and so the dogs are licking his wounds. Perhaps they're cleaning his wounds. I, the picture here is the dogs make this man unclean. He cannot worship in Israel, Israelite culture because he's unclean because of the presence of the dogs. This is the lowest of the low of the low. You see what Jesus is doing here? He is giving us a huge contrast. And that's, that's our setting. What's more, even more interesting is what the name Lazarus means. It, it's basically um, a, a, a shortened form of the name Eleazar. Eleazar is a, a venerable Hebrew name. Um, that was the name of uh, Aaron's son. And there were a bunch of Eleazars in the Old Testament who are great men. And so Lazarus is kind of a take on that. And it means something like God helps. It means something like God helps. God has helped or God is my helper. So here is a man who does not appear to be helped by God laying at the gate. Perhaps even the Pharisees as they heard this kind of snickered because they understood what his name meant. And yet he's outside the gate. He's unclean. He's not like this rich man, which all of them wanted to be like. See, what else we see here is as he lays outside, it is clear he doesn't get anything. It's clear that he doesn't get anything. Perhaps the dogs are also mentioned because they get the scraps before he can get to them. So so what's happening? (laughs) What's happening is that the rich man who has plenty does not deign to give the poor man outside the gate scraps. And this is totally against the Old Testament law. You could go back and look in in various places in Deuteronomy, um, and you can see how God provided both via taxes and also via free will offerings to provide for the poor. There were so many provisions in the Old Testament law that were meant to make sure that the poor were provided for. You could call it um, a form of welfare. Um, it was a, a way, there was no social safety net, right? There's no social security. And so this was a way to take care of the poorest of the poor. And yet the rich man is not doing that at all. We're, we're to understand that these guys are both Israelites. And so they are brothers. They are countrymen. And the rich man has done nothing for this poor man. 
Well, as different as they are, the same thing happens to them. In verses 22 and 23, we see that they both, what? They both die. Like everybody else. It's 100% rate. Death comes to all men. And so we see the death of the poor man. And here is where the radical reversal begins to take place. How, what happens to the poor man when he dies? We don't know anything about what happens to his physical body. We don't know whether he was placed in a pauper's grave, thrown on the side of the road. Uh, We don't know what. But he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He has an angelic escort to Abraham's side. Now, this word is Abraham's chest or his bosom. Uh, What it means is close to Abraham. Now, Abraham is father Abraham, the father of the Jews. He is revered. Um, among Jewish Jewish people. It's Moses and Abraham, right there at the top. These are the two guys. And here is this poor man escorted to Abraham's side. And and the Pharisees must have been like, come again? What? Excuse me? (laughs) What's going on here? Now, the rich man in the second half of 22, the rich man also died and was buried, probably in a, a massive family tomb was well-decorated, and in Hades. Whoa! We have a big-time switcheroo here. Um, The the concept of Hades in uh, the time of Jesus is debated. There's disagreement in Judaism about just what Hades was. Um, It it took a a lot of the Jewish view of Sheol, the grave, death, um, but also mixed in um, what Jesus began to teach about Gehenna and this fiery place of torment. Um, for the unrighteous. Uh, usually in the New Testament, Hades is a little bit more vague. It's more like the place where the dead people go. And it borrows a little bit from Greek mythology because that is also, this is Greek. That's a Greek word. There's a Greek god named Hades, right? Um, and so there's a little bit of, of conjecture on what all this means. But we, we're not left guessing what kind of place this is because the very next phrase says that in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. So see the reversal again. What was, what was Lazarus doing at the gate? Laying on the ground, looking up to the house, waiting for someone to throw some scraps. Now we have it totally flipped. The picture is that the, the rich man is in Hades and he's in torment. The same, it's the same word as torture. And, he, and he's looking up. He, so he's low and Abraham with Lazarus as his lieutenant right there is up there and, and the, the man looks up and he sees Lazarus at his side. This is amazing to see that Lazarus has made it to the bosom, the chest of Abraham. Perhaps the picture is of a child sitting on a father's lap, um, kind of bouncing him. It's kind of weird, um, I think, but it, it, it has that intimacy, that picture. Um, a picture that I think is, is a lot more credible is almost as if, um, like in the Last Supper, they're lying down and John is in the place of honor beside Jesus and he puts his head back to talk to Jesus and his head, because of how they laid around the table, uh, was in Jesus' chest, basically. He's the, the position of honor. And so it seems to me that that is a good, uh, a good thought here. If you go back just to chapter 13 really quick, turn over in chapter 13. We covered this uh, just several weeks ago. Uh, in verses 28 through 30. 
Jesus is teaching about the, the, the wide door and the narrow door and who's going to get into heaven. He talks about those who are going to be cast out. In verse 28 of chapter 13, it says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south, and here's the picture, recline at table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some who are, some are last will be first, some are first who will be last. So this is this, this continuation of Jesus' teaching where it, the reversal is, is complete, and the reversal is great. So it's, it's almost as if the man who was feasting and it was too too important, too rich to care about this poor man is now struggling in Hades and he sees Lazarus at Abraham's side feasting in uh, paradise. Well, what's interesting here now as we get into some of this, how much of this is symbol, how much of this is literal, how much do we build off of this? And I think just side point, one thing you can do is you can compare the imagery here to other imagery used in the scripture and begin to piece some things together. We call this progressive revelation. That, that God revealed himself uh, to Noah, but Noah only knew this much, right? And he revealed himself to Abraham, and Abraham knew more. And as God revealed more and more of his word, um, as, as, as he got to David and the Psalms and then the prophets, and God is revealing himself, it's being written down and preserved that we have more and more and more of God's truth. And so what we see here is, is a picture in a story and we need to figure out exactly um, what is going on. And I think that the, the main point does not rely on us agreeing on every little literal or symbolic aspect of this. What we do know is there's a rich man and a poor man. They died and there's some kind of afterlife. And in that afterlife, there's pleasure and there's judgment um, and there's more to come. So that's important for us to, to take a look at here. The rich man calls out to Abraham in verse 24, and he's very deferential. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. That sounds great. That's exactly what he should say, right? Have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. That's a command. Father Abraham, get that guy down here. How does this man, even in death, how does this man see Lazarus? Sees him as a slave, as a servant. Go get that boy. Come here, send him to me. To what? To dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. This man's sense of superiority and pride and arrogance has not gone away. And he says, for I am in anguish in this flame. Can you imagine the gall of saying this? Again, this is a story, right? Story told for, to, to help us see a truth. But this man does not see, um, he does not see Lazarus for who he is. He does not see himself for who he is. Now notice, he doesn't try to excuse any of his actions. There's no question about justice or fairness. He just wants relief, and he thinks he deserves it. He thinks he deserves this relief. And Abraham um, responds to him in a tender but firm way. He says, child, that's a term of endearment. He doesn't say, hey, punk, listen up. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And before we get to verse 26, I just, I, as I read that, I just, I thought, man, how, how helpful Abraham's tone is here to us. 
in our age, in the age of social media, in the, age, in the age of 24-hour news cycles, in the age of outrage, getting the highest ratings. Can we just look at his tone? He's not, he's not, he's telling the truth. Right, right? Abraham's not hiding anything from him. And yet he does it in a, in, a, in a kind and compassionate way. We need to be the kind of people that are able to say hard truths with the utmost compassion and kindness. We are not encouraged to do that by anybody in the culture. The culture pushes us to fight back, to click back, to type a really quick response. We should not be those kinds of people. We need to be tough and we need to be tender. Will we always get that balance? No, we won't. That's why we have forgiveness. This is the kind of response that we should be giving. Anyway, Abraham tells him the things, things are flipped. He doesn't give an explanation for why. He just says things have been reversed. In verse 26, he gives another really important point. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm. In Greek, it's megachasma. It's a huge chasm, a, an abyss. Between, it has been fixed. That's passive. That means somebody put it there. The implication being that God designed it this way. Chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The picture here is not geographical or topographical. We're not supposed to be trying to descend into Dante's Inferno and see what the geography of hell looks like. This is not a far side comic trying to show us the interior of hell. What this is, is a, a, a picture showing us the permanent separation. There is no second chances. There is no crossing back and forth. This is the teaching of the whole scripture. It makes what we do now eternally important. This is why we must get our heads up. There's so many things going on, bills to pay, kids to drive to here and there, going and and taking care of an aging parent, all these things, all these important things, all these good things. But if we get caught up in them, we forget eternity. Do you remember Pastor Ron up here? I don't know, was it this sermon series, the sermon series before? Maybe it was Isaiah. We had that long rope illustrating the length of our lives. uh, And he had this little red mark, and that was how long we live. And just this little little bitty time and this long rope. This is why we have to pick our heads up and look because there is a permanent separation. There is a mega chasm in between heaven and hell. And, and I would just, again, stop and, and discourage all of us in this room from using the word hell flippantly. That was a hell of a game. What the hell was that? This game is hella fun. We just throw it around like it's just another word in our vocabulary. No, when we do that, we lose the meaning of the word. We diminish it. It's just like the word awesome. I mean, like anything's awesome, right? And that means nothing's awesome anymore because everything's awesome. So when we just throw hell into everything, we we lose the, the significance of the place of judgment where you and I are headed if we do not repent. So let's, as a church, let's resolve not to use the word hell in a way that diminishes its true meaning. We've domesticated hell. Which means nobody's scared of it. Which means nobody feels the weight of eternal separation. Look at the words here. Torment. Anguish. Maybe your version says agony. Okay, it was really hot this week. 
Okay? Maybe, you, maybe, maybe I'm stepping on some toes because maybe you talked about hell this week. Listen, folks, 113, 116, whatever, that's nothing. You went into an air-conditioned room. When we are talking about hell, I, we talk about whether or not it's literal flames or figurative flames, whatever the flames stand for torment. Is it physical pain? Is it emotional pain? It's pain. It's separation from God. Notice, by the way, that Lazarus says nothing here. Lazarus is just there, which is probably great. He's just like, I can't believe this. This is amazing. I'm with Abraham. We have a secret handshake. It's fantastic. I love being here. Lazarus says nothing. And and this helps us to understand that Lazarus is not the one that we're learning from in this parable. It is the rich man that we're to learn from. Uh, Because Lazarus, we don't know why Lazarus is in heaven Except in the story, we don't, we have, there's no, there's no reason, there's no belief, there's no following the law, there, there's no faith, there's just a reversal. But what we do know is why the rich man is in Hades. That's what we do know. So as we continue, notice their request. Send that guy to dip his finger in my mouth. No, can't do it. Verse 27, okay, then I beg you, father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. I think that it's finally clicking that this is real. But again, what, what's, what's his, what's his uh, tactic? Send Lazarus. Send that, that boy. Go send him to my family. Wh- what does he mean? Does he mean a vision, a dream, an actual resurrection? Uh, don't know. Um, maybe this is similar to uh, the witch at Endor in the end of First Samuel where Saul goes to see the witch and Samuel pops up and tells him, you're going to die. You'll be with me tomorrow. Hey, wow, that's a terrible story. Um, Whatever the case is, he wants Lazarus to go do it. Again, he's kind of giving orders. So that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The, the, The rich man does not want his brothers to come. We're to understand that the brothers probably lived the same kind of life that this rich man lived. Ignoring their, uh, ignoring the poor, ignoring those that they could help with their wealth. Instead, focusing all of their wealth on themselves. What can I build for myself? Bigger barns, more experiences, a bigger retirement. All of these things were the sole focus of the rich man. Only now does he see what he should have done. And Abraham says, it's too late. So send them, send them to my brothers. Verse 29, Abraham said, listen, this is an amazing answer. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What is he saying? Partly it's an indictment on the rich man. You had Moses and the prophets. You did not hear them. But what he's saying is the Old Testament, the scriptures, God's revelation is enough it is sufficient perhaps you've heard or perhaps you've said yourself if only god would then i would believe jesus is going to pound that objection into the dust that is not a good objection when god's word has been given he's an israelite the temple is there in jerusalem for sacrifices to be offered Priests and Levites are teaching the Old Testament. There's Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers all over Israel. 
there is a word from God. And it is able to save. They have God's word. Listen, how much more than do we have God's word? With the Old and New Testaments together, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scripture is enough. The Bible is enough. This is what Jesus kept saying in his ministry. They don't need another sign. Jesus is the sign. Here is the sign. How about another sign? This was written 2,000 years ago. We still have it. In an incredibly accurate presentation that's been kept for us for 2,000 plus years. That is a sign. God has spoken supernaturally. He has preserved what he said. It is available and it can save. Now look what the man says next. (laughs) Verse 30. No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will what? They will repent. The, the man sees what the answer is. The answer is they, his brothers need to repent. He didn't. His brothers might still. But he's still mixed up because he thinks that there needs to be some kind of oh, light shining moment for this to happen. And look how Jesus ends the parable. He has Abraham saying this in verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Oh, man. That's incredible. You see the level of trust in the power of God's word that Jesus has? Do we have that level of trust in God's word? Now listen, we we need to be concerned about apologetics, about defending the faith, about presenting arguments and reasons, persuading like Paul did in the synagogues all through the book of Acts. But listen, your smart, rational arguments are good. They are important. But we're not trying to be smarter than others. People are usually not saved because they go, wow, you're way smarter than me. I'll be a part of that group. We're not trying to make brain converts. What we are trying to do is show them the glory of God so that they submit and fall on their knees in repentance. And so we need to, we need to have good arguments and we need to have personal compassion. Lobbing a truth grenade into somebody's life generally doesn't work very well. Shrapnel and all that. What we see here is that there's, there's truth argued persuasively coupled with love. That's hard. Because I'd rather win than wrestle and struggle for years and decades with you to repent. That's hard. Another thing that we see here at the end is we know the story. Right now, um, uh, Jonathan Avila sitting upstairs. I, I baptized him a few weeks ago up here. Jonathan's reading through the Bible for the first time in his life. It's so much fun. He comes with all these questions and reading through. And, and I can't remember what that's like just because I grew up in the church. And, I, and I've known these stories. But, but as we get to these stories and, and you see these things happening, you see this and, and you start to put pieces together and you go, wait a second. If, if, Mo, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be, they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. I remember reading the book of John about another guy named... Lazarus, who in chapter 11 of John is 
raised from the dead. That's incredible. Do you remember that story? Do you know what happens after Lazarus comes out? Immediate scheming to put him and Jesus to death. What did that amazing miracle do? Now, granted, some people, John 11 does say, some people were, were saved. They did believe. They followed. But there's this massive uh, conspiracy to put Lazarus and Jesus to death. The dude walked out of his tomb. And the reaction was, oh, this guy. That's their reaction. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus has already said it in several chapters previous. Guys, get your attention, disciples. We're going to go to Jerusalem. There I will, one, be betrayed, two, die, and three, rise. He said it before. He's already said it. They don't really get it, right? We probably wouldn't have either. Okay? But this is part of the story. This is incredible that this is, ironically, this happens. What happens in the parable that is a story actually happens in real life. And it's actually happening in the lives of people you know and love. Jesus did rise from the dead. And many, many, many people reject him. There is a clear testimony to Jesus in the scriptures, and yet Jesus is rejected. They are not convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I titled the sermon, What Really Matters. And, and we, I mean, there's so many more things we could talk about here. And, and I, if you have questions, please let me know about how we, how we interpret some of this and what we do with, with hell here. But what really matters are the points that are made in and through the parable. So it's not just it's not just with the parable, the content. It's with how the story is told as well. So we have the context of what's been told before, what parables have been said before. But you have a few, no- a few notes at the end. Wealth is dangerous. I mean, that's, that, that's the point. Wealth is dangerous. Wealth is not damning. Abraham was rich. <laughs> the, the guy that Lazarus goes to was wealthy, incredibly wealthy. But... The clear, the clear teaching in Scripture is that wealth is dangerous. Listen to these quotes. John D. Rockefeller, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Cornelius Vanderbilt, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Take that one to heart. Next time you see the mega, whatever, lotto thing. Okay? Just think. Vanderbilt said it's enough to kill anyone. I don't want any of that. John, John Jacob Astor was the first multi-million dollar American. I am the most miserable man on earth, he said. J. Paul Getty. What can I say? I only know I am desolate. Have you been to his villa? The museum? Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Now listen to this. Someone did a study of the scriptures. The Bible contains more than 500 references to prayer which is why we're going to pray later, and almost 500 references to faith. But there are more than 2,000 references to money and possessions. Depending on how you count, out of 38 parables that Jesus told in the Gospels, 16 deal with how we handle our money. Did Jesus think it's important to talk about money? Jesus said more about money and possessions than about heaven and hell combined. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, one out of every 10 deals with money or possessions. We need to think biblically about wealth. And next, the Bible is enough. 
taken very clearly from uh, Father Abraham's words. Look at that in 2 Timothy 3, as Paul talks to his protege. A great book to read on this is Kevin DeYoung's Taking God at His Word. It's in our church library. Uh, I've got a copy. Uh, It's a fantastic book about uh, God's Word and how we can trust it. Another point, hell is real. Hell is real. It's not just a cuss word. There is no second chance at salvation. Uh, But in greater news, heaven is real. Um, Listen to this. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. When the, and he's talking about how um, God is like the author, um, and, he, and when Jesus comes, it's like the author steps into his own story. He says, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then? For this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Um, the last point, you must repent. This is, what, this is what the story led to, that you must repent. If you're in this room right now, the scripture has been opened to you. You have heard the very words of the living God. Don't harden your heart. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Um, but, But realize and think seriously about what the rich man realized too late. He was a sinner. You, my friend, are a sinner. I stand before you as a sinner. We must Repent. What really matters? What really matters is knowing God through His Son, by His Spirit. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.